0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, January 16th. What role could privatized hospitals play in Canada's universal health care model and what lessons can we learn from other countries who have integrated the two? We tackle the topic with Bacchus Barua, director of the Center for Healthcare Policy Studies with the Fraser Institute. Next, the strain on Alberta's electricity supply was front and center over the weekend as cold temperatures put Alberta's power grid on life support. What can be done to strengthen the power grid and mitigate these issues moving forward? We get the thoughts of Heather exner Perot, Director of the Natural Resources, Energy, and Environment Program at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. And finally, just over two weeks into the new year, how's that resolution going for you? We get some pro tips to get you back on track and help you reach your goals with personal trainer and fitness coach, Roar Alexander could canada bring private health care options into the fold when it comes to our universal health care model joining us to discuss the latest report from the fraser institute is bacchus barua director of the center for health care policy studies with the fraser institute good morning to you and welcome back to the program bacchus good morning andy and
1: sue and uh, it's just great to be back on the show
0: Thanks for joining us. Uh, can, can you summarize the key findings of the report on the role of private hospitals and, and how they could find a place in the universal health care system? For sure. You know, Andy, the, the last
1: time that we talked about this, uh, we were talking about our annual report about wait times. Uh, and the thing is, we are facing an unprecedented situation in Canada. Where the average wait times are 27.7 weeks across canada in alberta that's 33.5 weeks on average between referral to treatment uh you know the the longest in history clearly we do need to look towards solutions and a great place to start is by looking at other countries with universal healthcare and how they do things differently the, the country that we looked at this time was australia And the reason why is that Australia actually spends about the same as Canada does uh, in terms of uh, per capita healthcare spending. It actually spends less uh, in terms of healthcare spending as a proportion of GDP after adjusting for age. Especially, it's got a kind of similar geography, um, and it's a tax-funded system in general. You know, in that way, it's very similar to Canada. But they have more physicians, they have more MRI machines, they have more CT scanners, and they have shorter wait times. And one of the key differences is that they also have a very different attitude towards the private sector. You know, in Canada, it's, the private sector is often seen as the antithesis to the public universal healthcare system. But in Australia, it's really seen as a partner. Uh, more than half of the population has some kind of private insurance for for, for core medical services. Uh, and very importantly, when we're looking at the actual number of hospitals in the country, but 48.5% of them are private hospitals, the majority of which are actually for-profit hospitals. And patients can generally look at care in both public hospitals and private hospitals. And importantly, private hospitals actually deliver care to public uh, to public patients as well as publicly subsidized patients as well. So it's just really a deep integration between the public and the private system focused on the patient getting care to the
0: patient. This, by the way, Bacchus, obviously an idea that's not new that has been floated in uh, in the past when floated concerns, questions raised about the compatibility and bringing private into the universal healthcare fold here in Canada, but then you mentioned Australia has done it with success. Is this a case then, Bacchus, of it being a a definition and maybe a marketing issue in the perception of what private looks like? Do Canadians have the wrong idea? Is that what the holdup is here, Bacchus?
1: You know, I've been looking at this for at least 15 years and I will say with the conversation that we have, one of the greatest challenges is constant comparisons with our neighbours south of the border. You know, the United States has a very different kind of healthcare system that's focused on on different goals. But Canada, with its universal healthcare system, is not unique in its goal of providing universal healthcare. It's actually one of 30 countries around the world that aims to have universal healthcare coverage. The thing is, other countries around the world don't, uh, ex- don't um, exclusively have uh, a reliance on government in order to do that they understand that the goal is much more important than the fact that it needs to be publicly funded and when we look at these countries when we look at switzerland the netherlands germany australia France, all of them generally have a different attitude towards the private sector they also do other things differently they generally expect patients to share in the cost of treatment they also fund their hospitals regardless of public or private through activity-based funding in order to incentivize treatment uh, and so yeah absolutely we really need to open our conversation broaden our horizons to other countries that are doing a better job, that have shorter wait times. You know, just just to give you one one small statistic over here, when we look at the percentage of patients uh, waiting uh, four weeks uh, for for uh, for specialists, 56% of, of patients in Australia were able to get that treatment within that time frame. It was only 39% in Canada. When you look at something like getting out of treatment, 72% of patients were able to get that uh, within four months in Australia, it was 62% in Canada. And then when you look at countries that do things very differently, like Switzerland, uh, you know, they're, they're getting patients in way, way, uh, way, way quicker than Canada does. But over here, we, we thought we'd look at Australia because, like I said, you know, it's about similar spending, you know, faces geographical issues that that are that are in some ways comparable. Um, has a tax-funded system, but. They understand that, you know, by running the private system in parallel to it, by using it as a parallel partner, by using it as pressure valve, that actually helps them deliver on that promise. And that's why the government actually decided to, you know, uh, subsidize some of the, the private insurance. They actually uh, pay for 75% of their uh, of their public fee in private hospitals. And when we look at the funding in private hospitals in Australia, we actually found that 32% of the funding actually comes from a variety of public sources, and that shows that it's really looking at it as a partner, not as uh, you know, not as not as uh, competition to it, but as a tool to deliver on that universal healthcare promise that we, just like the Australians, hold so dear.
0: You want to play devil's advocate here. And by the way, we're speaking with uh, Bacchus Barua. Bacchus Barua from the Fraser Institute. In fact, he's the center, a director for the Center of Healthcare Policy Studies with the Fraser Institute. Okay, so so if we do not have enough healthcare care professionals right now, this is devil advocate speaking here, Bacchus, don't have enough healthcare care professionals, we add private hospitals, who is going to staff those hospitals? And if we're drawing people in and we can't draw people in already, would we not have to pay them more? And would this not be more of a financial hit on the healthcare system, period? Well, you know,
1: that's, that's, a, that's a great and important question. There are two things I would say that we have to consider at least one is that we are assuming that, you know, when we have private hospitals uh, or the private sector involved, that the number of healthcare in, uh, professionals in the country stays the same. That doesn't necessarily have to be the case. The way that we're looking at, at educating and, and getting uh, doctors in Canada... The, the sort of supply constraints that we have is actually a product of government policy in the 1990s, where it actually restricted some of the medical medical school enrollment and um, and residencies, and then when doctors were graduating, you know, when they tried to increase it by about 2012. They actually were finding that they couldn't find positions in Canada. But that's because this, you know, strange way that we've, we've had of funding our hospitals with these global budgets that cause bottlenecks. And you know, I don't want to get too much into it, but it's not necessarily the case. Everything has to do with what are the details, what are the rules of the game. You, know, you could easily say, okay, we can let we can let these hospitals in, but doctors need to devote a certain number of hours in the private sector. It's all about how you structure the healthcare system, what are the rules in place, and really putting the station at the centre of it. If that means that doctors should be working in both the public and the private sector in order to use the maximum amount of hours that they can because sometimes you can't even get operating room time in public hospitals in canada then so be it that's what we need to put in but we'll never find out if we don't start having those conversations and this is really the start of that by looking at other countries that are doing you know generally a better job that are trying different policies that generally across the board have shorter wait times uh, and Australia is just one of those examples.
0: And, uh, you know, it is a solid example, and I think we need to do something at some point, and this could be the path. Thanks for your time, Bacchus. We appreciate it.
1: I appreciate it. I wish I had some some better news to, to warm me up on these cold days, but, you know, <laughs> stay safe and stay warm. I, I know it's a difficult time in Alberta, but I hope uh, I hope everyone's
0: doing well. It only do so much. Thanks so much, Bacchus. Appreciate it. That is uh, Bacchus Barua, director for the Center for Healthcare Policy Studies with the Fraser Institute. Albertans aren't used to the threat of rolling blackouts, but the strain on Alberta's power grid brought that concern into focus during the most recent cold snap. Joining us to discuss strengthening the grid in Alberta and the current state of it is Heather exner Perot, senior fellow and director of the Natural Resources, Energy and Environment Program at the McDonald laurier Institute. Good morning to you, Heather. Good morning. Well, you know, this was something It's interesting about the power grid, how maybe the average Calgarian or Albertan don't think about it until we have to think about it. How would you describe the stability, the current stability of Alberta's power grid?
2: Yeah, well, first I want to, you know, highlight what an exceptional nature of this event was. Um, You know, I did some digging. I do a lot of work on northern Arctic stuff. And this is the coldest Edmonton of a city of over a million, hitting 45.9, you know, minus 45.9 degrees Celsius. This has never happened in the Western Hemisphere ever before. It's only happened in one other city in the world, the Novosibirsk. So to have two major cities, you know, a population of four and a half million people, the GDP we put out, and that kind of cold, and still really, at the end of the day, the, the lights kept on, um, is also a testament. You know, I think we're the kings of winter. So on the one hand, let's all be grateful for, for the way that we did keep the lights on. But yes, mm-hmm. on the other hand, like you say, we're all, I think, much more aware mm-hmm. of our energy system and how much we need that reliability, that at that kind of cold, it is a matter of life and death. And to be, you know, very much more concerned, I think, about its reliability going forward.
0: So we square away, Heather. That this was, you know, a very complex, a very unique event that happened with that polar vortex over Alberta and, and the effects that it had, like you say, with four million people. Uh, but in general terms, how how do we compare as a province to other regions in the country, or how is the country when it comes to stability on on mass?
2: Yeah. So I think this this event highlighted for us a lot of different things. One is, you know, I'm, you know, not to rag on renewables, but at the time of our peak demand, we count on 0% from wind and solar. And so that just means that you really have to build uh, a system that relies not on wind and solar at all when you're looking at these peak loads. So that's interesting. The other thing is when we have these exceptional events, BC and Saskatchewan don't have a lot of their own excess power or Montana to send us because they're going to be dealing with the same weather events. So you can't really depend on those interties very much for that peak event either. Um, and so, so I think there's a lot of lessons learned about about what it what it means to be you know sustainable and reliable at these kinds of events Um, and then you know and then of course so so we're looking at reliability and affordability those were in sharp focus and yet we're trying to have more sustainable grids and that's where I I think you know this is a a made in Alberta problem this was maybe some you know elements of our privatized grid uh, coming into the forefront but as we look at some of the federal regulations coming down in the future I think it gives us some cause for pause Mm. think about how we can do this reliably
0: you mentioned heather and by the way we are speaking with heather exner perot senior fellow and director of the natural resources energy and environment program at mcdonald laurier institute uh you mentioned that you know these renewables unfortunately were not help during our time of need Uh, but we are hearing more about modular nuclear energy and small modular nuclear energy setups showing a lot of promise in fact we'll be talking about that in about 10 minutes the potential for it in the province uh what, what, about, what about something like that? If that was an option, would that have been something to have helped us through our way during those bitterly cold temperatures?
2: Yeah, so for most of the rest of the country, there are some excellent hydroelectricity resources, as you all know. So B.C., Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, Newfoundland have tremendous and very cheap hydro. But one of the reasons it's cheap is because it was built decades ago in a very different kind of political and social circumstance and indigenous rights and so on. Big hydro is no longer that cheap. So BC's Site C hydroelectric dam, I think it's now at about $16 billion for, I think, um, 1,100 megawatts. So compare that to Cascade, which will come online next year. And Alberta is about 900 megawatts for $1.6 Now, of course, you have to pay for the gas to keep it going. Mm-hmm. But all which to say is we can't depend on BC or Manitoba or others to put up big hydro to save us in the future because it's not cheap anymore. And they don't have plans to, to build any more big projects like that. And we don't have good hydro here, Uh, and obviously we can't count on wind and solar. So if you want that sustainable zero-carbon baseload, it's got to be nuclear, and then perfect timing, yesterday a big nuclear announcement for Alberta
0: absolutely perfect timing so I guess we'll see where that goes Uh, but the other thing is is something we touched on at the beginning of this uh, conversation Heather was the fact that uh, we as Calgarians and maybe as Albertans I can't speak for all four million of us don't really think about the power grid until we have to and we did what about personal responsibility Heather or is that something that within the parameters of your studies and your Institute we don't look at or is it something we should be thinking of when it comes to our consumption personally
2: well, I, I mean, I think we saw that. I think it was a great example. Um, you know, when the, when, the, when the alert went out, then people did immediately turn off, you know, some power. And it wasn't very hard, was it? It was like Christmas lights and doing your laundry a few hours later. And that's all it took. So we did see some personal responsibility. Everyone pitched in. Uh, but, but you don't want to have to, obviously, you don't have to rely. At some level, you need some energy at minus 46 to survive. Um, and doesn't mean you need Christmas lights on, but it means, means that we need to you know, have that grid functioning. So, so there's certainly some conservation we could do, we're all more aware, but you want to build a grid that allows everyone to be comfortable and have as much as they need
0: your purview obviously you're you're looking at in Canada and you were speaking specifically in Alberta but I'm wondering if we can take some cues from any other countries that have had success with stability uh, when it comes in affordability and the reliability of of power sources are there other parts of the world that we can look at and maybe copy their models well
2: I, I mean you know again not to exaggerate but we did go through this extreme weather event and did maintain you know at the end of the day that stability. And there's only one other country in this world that has the extreme conditions that we have with, you know, some of the population that we have, like I say, Russia. And they are very very heavily dependent on coal and nuclear. So those work well in these cold weather. Texas has done much better this week than it did, you know, when it faced a similar extreme weather event a couple years ago. Its wind is performing well for us, where our wind didn't perform well for us at all. Um, France, obviously, is full nuclear, hasn't, you know, kind of um, been so volatile as other countries in Europe. But nuclear also you have to shut down and do maintenance on. I guess, you know, the lesson here is that you want a diversity of energy supplies. You don't want to put all your eggs into a single basket. But guess what? I think that also means that we have to be careful about putting our heating and our transportation onto the electricity grid also. That some redundancy in the kinds of energy that we get at these times of kind of exceptional need is very important to have.
0: Interesting conversation and obviously super timely, Heather. Thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is Heather Exner Perot, Senior Fellow and Director of the Natural Resources, Energy, and Environment Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute. How's that New Year's resolution working out for you? Having great success moving toward your goal? Or have you kind of fizzled out when it comes to hitting your target? Well, not to worry. We've got some motivation lined up for you this morning to help you get back on track we're joined by Roar Alexander, head coach and founder at Barbells to Buddha's health fitness uh, health uh, sorry, fitness and health coaching based in Vancouver. My mouth is starting to work. Roar, good morning to you. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you this morning? Good. Thank you for joining us again. I believe we had you on late summer. Good to have you back on the program. Now, first off, Roar, if you could share your background and correct me if I'm wrong, where you mm-hmm. are the path you chose was a real choice for you. You weren't a lifelong athlete, I believe, and you didn't grow up with physical fitness as an everyday, nonstop obsessive part of your life, and your business wasn't handed to you, was it? Tell us your story.
3: No, so just to make it really brief, I was an art and uh, kind of guitar kid in high school uh, and lazy. Um, did, I got straight B's in gym class. Uh, I was uh, really bad uh, you know I hated shirts versus no shirts day and then as I got older uh, I actually wanted to get in the RCMP so I started looking into that with the school for psychology and I started getting into fitness and from there I just started really enjoying it ended up working with some nutrition stores and then just it's the way the world works I kind of got into I got introduced to martial arts a bit which led me into sort of into mixed martial arts and that led me uh, to traveling the world going through Hong Kong and basically I can tell people I go I boarded a one-way plane knowing nothing about Asia with a thousand dollars in my pocket and I just hoped for the best and ended up there for seven years
0: wow. <laughs> Incredible. And, you know, a chance to toot your own horn, and I know there's some perhaps privacy involved, but not only do you train people for a living, you train people for their professions, maybe even some Hollywood stars and and everyday people. So really, you have no parameters on who you'll train, but some of the best of, of, of their fields come to you, don't they?
3: they do i actually i've trained hollywood stars and i've trained pro cage fighters and champions but overall i actually my favorite thing is just training regular people uh, everybody always thinks oh he must be like really really expensive because he trained you know, i've trained like christina ricci in the past and tom welling and uh and, karen and Shipka from sabrina the teenage witch and a couple others but I'm like no, nah, I like re- dealing with regular folks. That's more my thing. You know, it's mostly guys for the most mm-hmm. part because I just I enjoy working with men for the most part. But you know, I've trained women there too.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And I know that uh, you're going to give us some tips. Uh, you have some tips for yeah. our listeners. And I know fitness is your world, but I think a lot of these can transcend beyond the fitness world into to any goal because when you talk about the goals in the mind it could be business it could be relationship mm-hmm. goals whatever, whatever it might be so uh, for those who have stepped away from their fitness routine or have fallen off whatever their uh, you know new year's resolution is we want to get back at it you've got some great tips uh, number one you send it our way is remember why you made the resolution to begin with so if you can break that one down for us
3: yeah so a lot of people they have this you know they have this They're thinking about it over December, November, and maybe October, even the whole last year. They're thinking, you know what, next year I'm going to do this. This is what I really want to do. They start making the moves into it, and then quickly sort of the actions that they've been taking, uh, they get more stuck on the actions that they're taking instead of the actual why. And then when things start to go wrong, uh, they just get flustered, and they forget kind of why they start in the first place, because they just get too hung up on the changes they're trying to make versus the reason they were trying to make those changes in the first place
0: very interesting point absolutely it, the other part is you know you're, you're now off the tracks and it's fine to say you know I've, I've i've kind of failed or i've faltered or i've fizzled to a certain extent you say uh, for point number two take a moment to figure out what went wrong
3: yes so basically i break it down to this there's basically just Too much, too little, and too rigid, right? Too much is people, they try to add too much exercise, they try to take away too much. They have too little education, maybe too little accountability, and then, like you said, pass or fail. So just take a moment to say, okay, why did the last couple weeks, like what did not work for me? Like why did it, what went wrong and how can I fix it? Was I trying to do too much or did I take away too much? It's really kind of those two things is what you see, like you said, whether it's fitness or whether it's money.
0: Hmm. yeah that, that's a very good point yeah and I guess it depends every situation would be different so the what went wrong would be different for everybody uh, number three mm-hmm. you've got a question uh, that you want people to ask themselves what is it I don't know tell us about that point
3: <laughs> so again that comes down to just people having too little education and a good action plan so say they go into the gym and this is because I see this all the time. You know, the gyms get really busy for January, even sometimes February. And people just come in there, but they just exercise. They they don't know what they're doing. They do everything wrong. Then they don't see results, and then they just go, "Well, it, it exercise doesn't work." It's like, no, no, it works. You just you didn't ask yourself, like you never stop to say, "What like what is it that I don't know? Like how do I do this properly?" Because it will work. You just have to know how to do it right. So You gotta ask yourself, "What is it I don't know?" Because there's a lot of things you don't know.
0: The accountability piece is something that, you know, and I've had uh, personal trainers in the past. I, you know, I I wanted to learn how to do things correctly, but I didn't think about that accountability piece. Uh, But beyond, you know, a professional, uh, point number four that you send is get someone to work with you to keep you on track. So I guess it could uh, be, be a pro, but it also, you know, could be a buddy.
3: Yeah, it doesn't have to be a pro. I mean, pros are great because, you know, I go the extra mile. Like I've had clients where I've literally, I've said to them, they said to me, I need you to wake me up every morning at 7 a.m. You know, even a buddy usually is not going to do that. But at the same time, you can have a buddy. You could say, okay, you know what? Let's meet at the gym three times a week. Uh, it could be a group. Go join a class. Go take a course. Uh, joining a group is a really good one because you can keep them accountable, especially these small group training gyms. People really enjoy. It becomes a community, and you actually enjoy going.
0: Yeah, that's. I think that's a good point in the sense that if it becomes work and you just worked an eight-hour day, you don't want to go and put more work in. So that enjoyment factor, that's, that's a good one. Uh, number five, this is interesting. Set a bigger reward, or as you call it, put down the deposit. What do you mean by that, Roar?
3: Well, I look at it like years ago. I'm not, I'm not a bodybuilder guy or fitness guy. But years ago, uh, we're talking almost like uh, tw- it'll be my 20-year anniversary because I'm actually going to do it again next year. I did a fitness model show. And I was kind of, you know, I was always going on and off, on and off. And one day I said, you know what, I'm going to do this show. And the show you had to put down, you know, we're talking 20 years ago, like a couple hundred dollar deposit. So I put that money down. and That money wasn't coming back to me. Mm. I And I'm not saying to do this, but I don't think I had a cheat day for like 16 weeks. Like <laughs> I went all in and I did everything I could because I'm like, I don't want to lose that 200 bucks and I don't want to look stupid on stage. <laughs> so, That's a good uh, one. So I tell the people, I go, but you know what? Book the f- I do it with my clients sometimes. I'll say, we're booking a photo shoot like, like 12 weeks out from now and we don't get the money back from the guy. Ooh. So you're either going to show up and look terrible in the photos or are going to look good. So let's go for it. Another and you do the same thing with the trip.
0: Yeah, I love the trip idea. It's really cold in Calgary right now. We're just coming out of it. We were, you know, I've minus heard. 48 wind chill. But that yep. beach body, because you're thinking about July, it's fine to want it. But you say, you know, call the airline, get on Expedia.
3: Yeah, book that trip right now. So you know what? I'm going to book that trip to Mexico, and I want to look good when I go there. And I'm not going to make sure it's one of those ones where I can't get my money back or cancel easy. Because if you got a way out, you'll you'll take it out. So you put the money down, you, you, they say you pay attention to what you pay for. So yeah, put the money down somewhere.
0: You, literally, you're putting your money where your mouth is at that point, for, or your goals. So that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Roar. Appreciate it.
3: No problem. Thank you for having me yeah. on.
0: Thank you. That's Roar Alexander, head coach and founder at Barbells to Buddha's Fitness and Health Coaching. More online at Roar, R-O-R,